Welcome, everybody, to the very first episode of The Strange Road Detours. I'm your host, Mikey. It's always been a dream of mine to start a podcast. We wanted to create a show that was a little different from The Strange Road podcast, where pretty much I interview interesting people that have landed on my radar. The Detours show is a little different. We pick a story, legend, book, or any strange topic, research it, then lay it down. It didn't take much to convince Bub to co-host with me. Our relationship was forged through discussions about the extraordinary for years. Our interests have really aligned in the world of UFOs, extraterrestrials, interdimensional beings, cryptids, lost civilizations, ancient knowledge, conspiracies, mysticism, psychedelics, pretty much anything outside the mainstream. Although many of these topics have become mainstream, which is really weird to me because when I was in my late teens and early 20s, you couldn't bring up a lot of these things without getting ridiculed. Well, not so much anymore. It's been fun to get obsessed with something new for my whole life. I tend to get this burning sensation in my brain that doesn't really turn off until I've turned over every rock and gotten the information I desire. New information is always trickling in over the years with every topic I've researched. Sometimes it's a flood. Many of these topics we've been digging into forever, and we'll get to revisit stories we grew up with. We haven't stopped learning about highly strange and interesting things, so we'll be covering more current obsessions too. You can follow us on all social media platforms at The Strange Road. And if you like this episode, hit subscribe. This week, Bub and I are going to take a detour on the strange road where we find ourselves in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, getting lost in the vortex of high strangeness that is the legendary Mothman, an elusive humanoid flying cryptid with mesmerizing red eyes, the catalyst for 13 months of weirdness that includes UFOs, contact with ETs, and strange energy. Not only that, but sightings of the men in black. The deeper you go, the more bizarre it gets. Bub and I will let you in on our personal story with this highly controversial subject. The most famous string of Mothman sightings happened not too far from our home here in Columbus, Ohio. And in the mid-1960s, there was a span of many sightings in this area. To clear his head and have an adventure one day, Bub ended up driving to Point Pleasant to visit the Mothman Museum, which really inspired this episode. While he was there, he picked up a famous book by John Keel, The Mothman Prophecies. He started telling me about all the strange phenomena that was connected and surrounding all of the Mothman sightings from basically 1966 through 1967, and my mind was blown. I thought I knew the whole story. It turns out, I didn't know Jack. Here's the very first episode of The Strange Road Detours. Visiting Mothman. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Strange Road Detours, visiting the Mothman today. I'm here yeah. with my best buddy, Bub. What's happening, hey. Bub? Hey, uh, not much. Just uh, hanging out, about to talk about uh, some interesting uh, happenings in the world. All right. So me and Bub have known each other for a long time. Uh, we met in kindergarten, 
and uh, yeah. been nah. thick as thieves uh, ever since. And we've been into ufology, cryptids, strange happenings for a long time together. So this is going to be really fun. Been looking yeah. forward to this. Yeah. Um, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Crowdcast, at The Strange Road. And, Bub, let's get started with you. Let's talk to you. Uh, let's talk about your personal journey um, with the Mothman. Oh, okay. So uh, I recently uh, began re-exploring the Mothman uh, after being aware of the phenomenon many years ago through the now widely known movie bearing the same name, The Mothman Prophecies. Uh, at the time I first watched the film, it's sad to say, but the internet wasn't the find-everything machine. Smartphones were still a few years away from being in the hands of the few, and information was just a little more difficult to get for the average research amateur enthusiast. Um, the film did, however, leave a strong imprint stuck with me throughout the years. And then, you know, being a follower of ufology and cryptids and ghost tales in general from when you're a kid through your entire life, you kind of hear those stories. But this one was a little bit further out there. Um, however, in the recent past, there was for some reason, there's become a resurgence of interest in the Mothman and the author who wrote the story, John Keel. Um, so going from novel beginnings of YouTube and internet searches, I found myself at the end of the road, so to speak. Uh, no conventional forms of armchair research could take me further. And suddenly a thought crept in my mind. You live within driving distance of the actual place where this event occurred, and there's a museum to see more pieces of the story. So say no more. Being a creature of spontaneity and the fact that my wife was gone, I decided one Saturday afternoon in March of this year to take a drive to the museum and lay eyes on the area myself. Um, the museum is uh, as much of a museum, I guess, that you could have for something like this. Um, I don't know how much more you can make a museum out of the Mothman story. Maybe you could. Um, there's some merch up front. I picked up a Mothman shirt for myself. Uh, and I got John Keel's uh, The Mothman Prophecies and Gray Barker's Men in Black, two very heavily involved authors on the subject. And uh, this is where the rabbit hole opened up for me, quite honestly. The book... Uh, by John Keel's utterly overwhelming in many ways, from the sheer number of sightings of the Mothman and from other sightings of UFOs, the Men in Black, and other strange occurrences. Um, there's some doppelganger instances and, uh, and an entity who literally gives its name to a contactee during a bizarre encounter. Um, the story that began to unfold took on its own life in a way. I tore through the paperback account of Keel's um, I rewatched the Mothman prophecies, uh, which really helped just for factual background um, as far as his book goes in the movie. And then I've watched everything else I can get my hands on documentaries. Um, what was your first encounter with the Mothman? Was it the movie? Did you have something when you were a kid? Yeah, I heard about the Mothman from you know, one of those early paranormal shows. And then I remember going on in the you know in the late 90s on my parents dial up computer and on web crawler God, that Yahoo. noise if you put up the yeah. telephone to your head when it was <laughs> dialing up jeez so i did a search and you know back then the like you were saying the internet isn't what it is now no. so what came up was some accounts um some uh, basically firsthand accounts and sightings reports and some terrible images and artist renderings of the Mothman. And so it was real surface level, nothing too deep at all. And uh, thought it was an interesting story at the time. Didn't think much about it until the Mothman prophecies came out in 2002. Right. 
I remember renting that from Blockbuster. And wow. it was okay. I thought it was okay at the time. It didn't blow me away in any way. I thought Hollywood kind of dropped the ball and it, it could have been better. Um, and so I got to go back and rewatch that still. Um, you were saying that's actually pretty good in hindsight. So um, I, I thought it was good at the time. In hindsight, what I was just thinking was the only reason I could see it falling short was it didn't actually really show the Mothman ever. Right. And I think that's they were kind of trying to leave it that way so that your only lasting image, or most if you remember, was the red glowing eyes of it, which was kind of the accounts of most of the people. Yeah, that's the big thing. Big thing that stuck out, the red glowing eyes. Right. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, after the movie came out, I did work with a woman that grew up in Point Pleasant in, in around 2005. And she, I don't believe she was alive during this. If she was, okay. she was, she was a kid. But she said everybody in the town believed that the Mothman was real, that the accounts really happened. I mean, there were so many accounts, uh, over 200 in a 13-month period, and so many articles written about it. Um, you know, there was national media attention, and um, the it was kind of a big deal. So um, she had said that everyone in that town sure believed it. So years went by, never thought about the Mothman. Right. Got into a million other strange things, lost right. civilizations, ancient wisdoms, conspiracies. And until recently when you started tapping back into the Mothman and went to the museum, uh, we started talking about how cool it would be to do a podcast right. about the Mothman. So you really kind of introduced me to... Uh, so many things that I didn't know about with this story. I mean, it is deep. <laughs> yeah. The yeah, rabbit hole goes super deep. Yes, it does. Um, and I just had no clue. So, you know, let's get into it. Absolutely. Cool. So, there are, um, it's a pretty amazing tale. And to lay kind of the foundation or the groundwork, you got to start somewhere. So, we're going to start off with the curse of Chief Cornstalk. Absolutely. And Chief Cornstalk was a Native American chief in the late 1700s. The Shawnee tribe. Yeah, Shawnee. And um, he and uh, a bunch of different groups of um, other tribes banded Absolutely. together to, to basically try to make peace with the Ohio settlers at the time. Well, they, they'd the, been fighting them. Yes. And they found out it wasn't working. Right. And Cornstalk was like, look, guys, we need to go settle this somehow and, and call a truce. So, so he, he went to the fort. Went to the fort to do that. Mm-hmm. But from there. So they held, when he went to the fort, he knew that if they would hold him captive, that the other tribes wouldn't attack the fort in trying to basically extend an olive branch. Right. So right. they took him and his son captive. And then while they were in prison, another uh, group of soldiers was out in the forest. Hunting or something like that. Yeah, and they ran into some of the indigenous people, and one of the soldiers was killed. Right. So when they brought the body back to the fort— That's when it kind of got a little ugly. The soldiers were enraged, and they uh, went straight into the cell where Chief Cornstalk— and his son were, and murdered them both. So the story goes 
that uh, with Chief Cornstalk's dying breath, he placed a curse upon Point Pleasant, calling upon the Great Spirit to avenge their deaths. And, you know, this legend has been told for 200 years, and so it kind of sets the stage for some of the things, many things that you're going to see for the next 200 years. Right. And so the idea is that the the land is cursed. It's um, experienced massive amounts of trauma. And yeah. the land in some way is sort of holding this negative energy that kind of... Imprinted. Yeah. So it's sort of setting the stage for all this high strangeness that we're going to talk about today. So... What is the Mothman? Uh, apparently, it's a gigantic man-like creature, um, like six to eight feet tall, which, I mean, that puts it in some range of being a man-like creature, but, I mean, I don't see a lot of eight-foot dudes walking around at night. With 10 to 15-foot wingspans. Jumping from top of tree to top of tree. I mean, that just... There are six to eight foot tall men. You know what I'm thinking? If there's like a hoax, if if, if you want to say, if there was something to compare this to, I mean, but that's a big person. Six to eight foot tall, 10 to foot, like 15 wingspan, 10 to 15 feet um, with wings that would unfold from its back a lot like a bat or a moth, um, which was interesting. The way that name came about, I think, was something relating to. I thought, want to say it was a Batman movie, but they used Mothman instead, or maybe that was a character. But um, a lot of people said it would rise up slowly off the ground, and when it would take off, just like a helicopter, there was no, it didn't have to flap its wings to take off. It didn't make noise when it took off. There was no sound. No. No flapping of the wings. The wings no. didn't move. No. They sort of unfurled, unfolded, and yeah. then it just would come up. Like Dracula, and like just rise up boom. and go. And there are accounts of it flying at pretty high speeds. Pretty high speeds. Yeah. Um, it did walk on two hind legs. Um, had a face like a bird. Big glowing red eyes was the number one thing um, that you hear in nearly every account. And then the effects of the glowing red eyes too, right? Like you looked into some of that after what what happened to people after seeing this thing? Yeah, so, you know, you've I've always heard of accounts that people have contact with UFOs, and when they look into the lights, they get uh, burns on their eyes and then eventually conjunctivitis. So you have a lot of those accounts, too, with the Mothman, is when you gaze into these red eyes that it somehow is emitting some sort of radiation, and people uh, get burns on their eyes and conjunctivitis, and... Um, a lot of different reports of that. And <clears throat> so um, one of those people was Connie Carpenter, who was uh, this Mary Hire's niece. Okay. And we'll get into Mary later. She was a she's journalist. She's a reputable source. Yeah, she's a journalist at the Athens Gazette in Athens, Ohio. And uh, Connie Carpenter actually was one of these people that uh, had gotten conjunctivitis from uh, seeing the Mothman. So... Uh, that was November 27th of 1966. And we're going to kind of just go down the line here of, uh, you know, the sightings that occurred. Like I said earlier, there was 200 sightings from November 15th, 19, uh, 1966 to December 15th of 1967. That's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. And in a three-month period, they had over 100 sightings. So there was a bunch of clusters. There was eight sightings in one night. Uh, there were some newspaper articles written about that. 
So a lot of this is pretty heavily documented. Um, and then really the first major site was Kenneth Duncan. And do you want to talk a little bit about Kenneth's experience? Yeah, he was actually with a crew of guys and they were out digging graves, which, wow. No thanks, first off. <laughs> Second, you imagine being out there and you're digging this grave and he said the other men did not see the creature before it flew away. But he said a brown creature lifted off beyond the trees and it was no bird. It was a humanoid. It was gliding through the trees and it was in sight for about a minute. Um, he said he was just absolutely baffled and did not look like it was any kind of bird, but seemed to be a man with wings. Again, like you got to kind of if you're if you're seeing this, do you do you think well that's a bird? Because that's an even more abstract thought. It seems like it's more natural to think it's a. Man with wings. Well, he thought it was a huge bird, but then he realized how big it was. Like, That's what that I'm saying. Bird, how yeah. would you wrap your head around that? Yeah. And so yeah. then it goes from there to the uh, next sighting um, on November 13th with uh, your buddy Merle. You know Merle, this one better Merle, than I do. Merle Partridge. Yeah, Merle Partridge. Yeah, so TV incident. that was November 13th, 1966. Merle Partridge. Um had an incident where he was just kind of hanging out watching TV and his uh, TV started glitching out or some, uh, you know, surge, static. static. And he started hearing this winding noise, almost like a generator winding up and this sort of high pitch winding noise. Yeah. And uh, his dog started freaking out. So then he went out front and was kind of walking around, got his flashlight off, uh, got his flashlight out and grabbed a shotgun or yeah. uh, some sort of gun. And and so when he shined his flashlight, he caught the the red eyes. So he Reflection. went outside, yeah, and he was on his porch. And I think on the garage or one of his buildings on the side of a barn, there were these lights, red lights that were moving around in circles. Yeah, yeah. And um, this, these strange kind of circular spiral patterns. Kind of a dance. So, you know, he starts shining his flashlight out into uh, the darkness and then he catches the red eyes with his flashlight and the dog just bolts. The dog just takes off. And um, so some fear kind of washes over him and he's like, whoa, you know, he right. realizes that there's something not right here. Right. And uh, <laughs> old boy's jamming on the drums down there. Yeah. Got some grooves in <laughs> nice. the background. All right, we got a nice drum track here tonight in the background. Tasty little section. <laughs> little tracks. So, um, uh, basically, Merle's dog takes off. And, Bandit. And this is, uh, John Keel talks about this in his book, The Mothman Prophecies. Right. Written in 1975 about this account. Um, and I believe Gray Barker, Barker was one of the first people that interviewed Merle. And so, uh, Gray Barker was this, uh, like, legend ufologist in the West Virginia area. And a lot of people had known about He was a pretty serious researcher, very yeah. scientific-minded, yeah. um, you know, skeptical of people's eyewitness accounts and so yeah. forth. So, he was a pretty thorough guy, well-respected. And um, so, <clears throat> you know, Merle, uh, his dog takes off. The dog doesn't come back. So he contacts the sheriff, George Johnson, and um, he tells him, 
He shined the flashlight in the field, and the eyes would light up like bicycle reflectors. And big, so that's how yeah. we talking. So then Two he saw inches. a UFO-like craft with rotating red lights, I believe, also. And uh, the next day he went out and looked uh, in the direction where he was shining his flashlight, and he yeah. saw his dog's footprints going around in circles as if the dog was chasing its tail. Yeah. There were no tracks coming out of the circle in any direction from anything. So but it's the like dog's just the gone. dog just vanished. Wow. So never came back, never got his dog back. Um, and then the most famous sighting is November 15th, 1966. Yeah. And there are two young couples that are driving near this TNT area that the locals kind of all refer to. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty well-known area. It was a former um, World War II munitions factory where they were making TNT and storing TNT. Yeah, the West Virginia Ordnance Works. Yes, exactly. And it was the size of a small city. Um, it eventually became essentially a toxic waste dump. So right. there were a lot of chemicals and just weird shit in the groundwater. Yeah, and, a lot of stuff that shouldn't shouldn't probably be seeping through the uh, the yeah <laughs> the bird sanctuary, the wildlife sanctuary. So it's it's kind of like a forbidden land, anyway. So right. it's, it's it's the locals all say it's haunted, or you know, there's a lot of stories about this area to begin with, well, and so they're kind of just driving on the outskirts of this area, and um, basically um, what they saw was. Um, something that was flying over top of them, or something. No, I'm sorry. It was in the in the middle of the road. Correct. I saw it on the side of the road. I think okay. at first when they were um, driving up to it. Like I don't remember if it was one of the girls in the back or one of the guys in the back, but um, they were driving along and saw it on the side of the road, like standing or kind of half crouching. Yeah, and it like stood up. You could see the eyes. And then as they were driving and they could see it, I think in the rear view was when it kicked up its wings and then started taking off after him. And at that point, I mean, I, I, I can't remember That's if it was account. Scarberry was driving the car, if it was Mallet. I think it was Scarberry was driving the car. Yeah. I mean, just as fast as he could get the you know automobile to go at the time. He's trying to get up to maybe like 60, 70 miles an hour, which that's pretty yeah. good speed. And he said it was right along with him. Yeah. And it followed him for a little ways. I don't remember if it dodged off and flew off into a field. But uh, they went straight from there to the police station to make the report. Mm -hmm. So, I mean. They were the ones that talked about it lifting up like a helicopter. Yeah. Not flapping its wings. So, that came from this sighting. Right. And um, <clears throat> so, you know, a lot of people thought that the Mothman was living in the North Power Plant on this property. Um, so many sightings come from this TNT area um, over the 13-month period that everyone just kind of assumed that that was the Mothman's kind of hangout pad. Right. Um, and Started to get a lot of attention. Yeah, absolutely. So people would like kind of post out, post up there and see if they could get a glimpse of the Mothman. People were coming from out of town to kind of hang out in that area and walk through it. So there were some issues like trying to keep people out of there. Yeah. Everybody's trying to get a glimpse at the Mothman. <laughs> so, um, and then <clears throat> there was a, a whole bunch of sightings that, I mean, we could get into. It's hard to sit here and account all the different 
documented sightings. Those are the early ones. And then it sort of all com- uh, uh, culminates into the Silver Bridge collapsing. Yeah. December 15th, 1967. Yeah. Now, there were people that reported the Mothman flying over top of the bridge the night that it collapsed. Yeah. Possibly There's a lot of stories kind of spinning around that. Yeah. And um, pretty much uh, the bridge was built in 1928 and uh, it's connecting Point Pleasant and Galpolis, Ohio. And um, it really just wasn't built for modern cars. The weight no. capacity was no. uh, overwhelmed, and and there was a it was uh, a red light. There was a malfunction on a stoplight, and so you had all these people out there Christmas shopping. So there's all these right. cars that normally they're not just they're all moving. Right. And uh, this uh, one of the um, uh, beams came undone. And it just sort of shifted and, and collapsed. Yeah. Um, 47 people lost their lives. This is like a huge deal. I mean, this was a big national story. 46. 46, sorry. I'm 46 not going to skewer you too bad on numbers. <laughs> I, I would note if it wasn't Fact check me. Too. Yeah, <laughs> we'll try. Um, Watch out for myself. But uh, so after this happened, the Mothman sightings and all the other weird things that we're going to kind of get into... You know, there were Mothman sightings, UFO sightings, um, strange men in black people hovering around this during this period. And all of that just came to an end after the Silver Bridge collapsed. Basically stopped. Yeah. So that was kind of an interesting thing. A lot of people want to tie, some, you know, the Chief Cornstalk's curse and um, the UFOs and the Mothman. And then it's sort of like this bad omen when the Mothman appears, this kind of theory that throughout time he's shown up during different windows as an omen or a right. prophecy of something right. bad going to happen. Right. And Keel talks about that in his book too, um, about different times that the Mothman has been alluded to being around before a great disaster. I was looking for some stuff on that. I mean, that's where I I don't know how far to go with it sometimes. Yeah. You know. There does seem to I, I kind of have a saying though there's you know where there's smoke there's fire generally if yeah. you're if you're looking at something at least collectively if there's that many people seeing something like this or experiencing right. something like this right and I it would it would seem kind of fantastical to just go out and out of blue say if I said this right now that I'm seeing the Mothman around here why would a hundred people within three months say the same thing just to get on my crazy bandwagon. Yeah, like, exactly. That doesn't really work that way. It's just the volume of sightings. Right. You know, well, that, that's the validity, what blew me away. The validity to the sightings. And the people that experienced it. Right. Police officers and right. know, a lot of people probably didn't come forward right. either. Um, and, you know, to be ridiculed and called right. a whack job or right. whatever it may be. Um, you know, they tried to explain away some of the, the, the theories were that it's this uh, crane. Um, a sandhill the crane. The sandhill crane, which has uh, sort of like a red painted face. Yeah, around its eyes and... But you know, it's a pretty big bird, but it's not six to eight feet tall. No, it's only like a, three or maybe four. Yeah. So mutated birds because of the TNT area, that there may be some validity of mutations happening. That I don't doubt. There's a, a power plant. Um, there was a plutonium factory. 
um, uh, different kind of, uh, not in that area, but, you know, that area is kind of well known for um, uh, the World War II time of, of you know, creating explosives and, oh, yeah, and different yeah. things like yeah, that. housing a lot of chemicals and, mm-hmm. and TNT and I think there was another. So I don't really know how, you know, owls was another theory. No. Mutated birds, leftover dinosaurs. Um, there's always been stories of the Thunderbirds. That one's in, interesting. In Native American culture. Right. And, um, you know, the Thunderbirds were, stories were told that, you know, they carry children and elderly people away. And, um, you know, it's a, a, a spirit um, that... Um, sort of terrorizes people and this giant bird. Um, and you have a lot of a lot of those legends. And then indigenous North America, you have the Piasu. Okay. And the Piasu is is a terrifying creature with red eyes and a long tail. Um, some people are making comparisons to the Thunderbirds, the yeah. Piasu, the Mothman. Um, you know, in New Jersey, you have the New Jersey Devil. Sure. Some of these, you know, there's other flying cryptids. There's stories of pterodactyl that people have seen in Texas and other places in the world. Yeah. So you have these, there's a lot of different uh, creatures um, throughout times. And Keel goes into some of the things with, um, you know, cave drawings and so forth and different cultures that have um, these beings that look a lot like the Mothman. Right. And artwork and so forth. Right. Um, and uh, there's the Babylonian Pazazu, which is kind of a little close to the Piasu from the North American culture. And uh, the Babylonians had stories about this and even had artist renderings. You could look that up. It's, it's pretty weird. That's um, so wild. It's very close phonetically, but also the depictions of it uh, with the red eyes and, and the wings. So... Um, and then in Japan, there's the Karasu Tengu, wow. which is uh, another similar being in, in Japanese lore um, that has similar features. And so you can kind of go back in ancient times and, and a lot of other cultures that have similar stories of these large, out of place, strange flying creatures. Right. But let me ask you this. After you've read what you've read on the subject, watched documentaries, et cetera. Granted, we're not, you know, authorities on the matter. What's Mothman? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> I can't make a, I can't make an assumption. I really don't know. I mean. I can't even generate a thought uh, on a theory of what can, I would think it would look like if we, I was out and I actually <laughs> saw it. When we get into John Keel a little bit, he yeah. definitely has some theories. And true, his, true. his theories are pretty interesting. And, We'll get into John Keel. Let's let's put it that way. That's a whole. We could do a whole show just on John Keel. It might be a whole side road one time. Yeah. So um, take it down a detour. But some a really really interesting story that I had no clue about until I you turned me on to this was this character Woodrow Derenberger. Woodrow Derenberger. And so Woodrow Derenberger a good story. had this experience or contact. I don't know what you want to call it. Um, uh, it was, yeah, a contact. It was definitely a contact. Yeah, a contact yeah. of some sort with what he says. this uh, strange fellow um, 
that introduces himself as cold and later injured cold. Yeah. So this is the sort of the synopsis of Woodrow Derenberger and injured cold. Yeah. Now, um, this is a few towns away, and um, it was a few towns away from Point Pleasant, and it was a, f- a week before the first Mothman sighting. Yeah. So this would have been November 2nd, 1966. Yeah. And uh, Woodrow Derenberger uh, had an encounter with, uh, basically he thought a car was following him. Yeah. He's, he's a salesman. He was on the road all day um, selling kitchenware and so forth. And he had a long day on the road. And I think it was like 7 p.m. And he sees this vehicle behind him and it's just coming right up behind him super fast. And he's just, you know, what the heck's going on here? And then it kind of pulls alongside him, and then he eventually pulls over, correct? He, and he is stopped after he, a certain point he because he's being parking. obstructed right. by the The craft kind of takes around him, which at the time, until it stopped, he didn't really realize what it was. Right. And then what he describes is an old-fashioned kerosene lamp chimney sort of a shape. That's interesting. Um, and it was flaring at both ends, Um and then it sort of narrowed down into a small neck and then enlarging into a great bulge in the center. So this is coming from uh, John Keel's The Mothman Prophecies. Right. And uh, so the door slides open and this man steps out. Um, and this being begins to walk towards the vehicle. Yep. And he's kind of afraid to open the window and then he starts getting this message you know, open the window, roll your window down. Yeah. And so he's looking at this guy, but his lips aren't moving. Right. And he's not talking, but he he's can just hear, smiling can hear he's just smiling. At he's a strange guy. Yeah. Um, and the being, uh, is communicating with him telepathically. He doesn't really hear an audible voice. Right. And then he tells him telepathically, do not be afraid. And he wasn't afraid. Yeah. He says in his interview, he goes, he was very polite and friendly. Mm hmm. And then he says, my name is Colt. I sleep, breathe, and bleed as you do. Okay, so they have this telepathic conversation, and Colt ends up telling Woody to report the meeting to the authorities and that he will return. That's strange. So he goes home, and he talks to his wife, and they decide they're going to call the cops. So they call the police, they make a report, and, you know, apparently the police believed him and um you know they were understanding of the situation yeah he was investigated by quite a quite a list yeah that wanted to know his story on that so then it got out in the press yeah and it became this huge story and there were media yeah. teams coming from uh New York and it became an, a big story right patterson sent some people to come out and talk to him uh, of course <laughs> absolutely yeah right patterson air force base the um you know, supposed home of Project Project Blue Book and yep. um, the legend of uh, the crash at Roswell. Yeah. The wreckage was apparently taken to Hangar 48 yep. in, uh, uh, in wright Patterson Air Force Base, base in Dayton, Ohio. 18. Uh, Hangar 18. Hangar 18. Sorry, what I say? 48? You're good. Dummy. You're good. So this guy, Cold... Uh, this being, this person, whatever he is. Entity of some nature. Um, 
so real quick, the day before this happens, this contact with this injured cold and Wood, Woodrow Derenberger. Yeah. Uh, the day before this happens, there is uh, November 1st, 1966, a National Guardsman actually is uh, working at the armory in Point Pleasant. And he saw a large brown humanoid figure perched on the limb of a tree. And he only reported it after the initial Mothman uh, reports came out. So Sounds a lot like the guys in the graveyard, though, too. Yeah. Well, people don't want to come out. You know, they see something weird. They don't want to be ridiculed by their peers. Well, I'm or, sure his position, he didn't want to come out and talk about that necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's a National Guardsman. Right. And uh, so it's just kind of weird that that happened the day before this contact with this injured cold character. Do you think maybe they're trying to go to that area first to I mean, talk to them? And now that they're going to Woody, they're saying you still need to tell people. I think they, whoever this injured strange. cold dude was, he wanted it documented. He wanted some validity behind the, the contact. With him the and story, The story to get out. Yeah, he wanted the story to get out. Could for be. whatever reason. Um, so you have UFO encounters, you have the Mothman, you yeah. have these this strange guy visiting this guy, Woodrow. And then November 4th, 1966, uh, Woody is riding with a coworker. Okay. And he describes these thoughts start being projected into his mind. Just while they're going down the road. And they're not his thoughts. He he immediately realizes that it's injured cold communicating with him again. So he's, wow. he's just driving down the road and Cold starts explaining that he's from the planet of Lanulos in the galaxy of... Ganymede. Ganymede, thank I you. I think that's it. And that he, uh, him and his people have a life expectancy of 125 years to Not 175 years. Not too um, shabby. There's no war, poverty, hunger, misery. All those things don't exist on the planet Lanulos. Hmm. And... Um, after that, these initial contacts, he's visited many, many times. Uh, uh, yeah, Woody is yeah. by this injured cold character, and um, and you know, there's reports him telling. I mean, there's an interview on YouTube that's in black and white. Oh yeah, from the I think it was from 1966 it's, where he went on some TV program. Yeah. And uh, we might be able to throw the link up in the description for that or something. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, but he kind of, you know, and I don't think it was that interview, but he does talk about getting on the craft eventually with this injured cold and them flying into space. And well, some, he, it gets really He had out gone there. missing for like six months at one point. Right. He went missing and that's when he claimed that he was on the spaceship and was flying through space with this guy. Or was visiting his planet or whatever he was doing. Right. So, I mean, that's kind of, yeah, that's not easy to do. And how I didn't know about this really blew my mind. You know, I, I was shocked You because know, these stories are similar to like the Vril Society, these sort of uh, Scandinavian or or what they would be called um, sort of Nordic looking people that oh, were contacting. Injured. Well, it's similar to the Vril Society contact yeah. in, in the in the 1930s with the the Vril Society in Germany. 
Yeah. Which eventually kind of spun off and became the cultic side of the SS. Right. And uh, the story goes that these Nordic-looking beings came down. They're like tall, blonde hair, beautiful, blue-eyed women. And they were channeling these beings at first. And then eventually they started coming in first contact with them. Okay. They started sharing technology about craft. And that's sort of, you know, the Nazis eventually kind of came in and co-opted that and developed their own flying technology. So you have these times where people are being contacted by strange beings that are coming down on their craft. They're giving them information. Right. They're kind of nudging them towards things. Um, So it just reminds me of different stories throughout time. Barney and Betty Hill. Right. Um, And uh, that's an interesting one if uh, listeners haven't heard of that. Definitely Google uh, Barney and Betty Hill. Yeah. That's a good one. So there's some similarities there. This is definitely not a a, uh, a story that's um, it, there's definitely similar things happening there all over the place. So we can oh one thing um, two weeks after Darren Berger's writing with his coworker and he starts getting these thoughts kind of beamed into his mind or whatever you want to say. Um, these salesmen started showing up and uh, Mineral Wells, which was a town um, not too far away from Point Pleasant, I believe. Right. And they were going into people's houses. Some of them were showing up as like kitchenware salesmen. Uh, one guy was selling Bibles. Another guy was selling, uh, was saying that he was a Mormon mission. And so they had- A lot of cover stories. Yeah. They had uh, strange uh, skin tone very dark tan and um, but they really didn't seem too interested in selling their product right they were more interested in Woody Derenberger and asking the people of the town if they believed Woody right if he really had this contact because like we said earlier right. this guy became famous right and so everybody knew about Woody. And but then there's some people creeping around. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So Start these, but these guys it. were awkward. These, these right. They, they were unintelligible. Descriptions were, um, could barely hold a conversation. Right. Uh, they just seemed kind of like dummies. Yeah. And uh, so there's a lot more of those kind of weird sightings that we'll talk about um, during that 13 month month period. And so um, there is. Uh, Definitely, definitely some strange things with these with these salesmen kind of popping up and yeah. asking people questions about Woody. So we can get into John Keel. Let's get into John Keel. There's a lot here. This guy was into so many things. Quite a few things. And from what I understand, he was um, not really into the UFO world at all and took a job uh, for a magazine and started doing his own sort of comprehensive research on sightings and interviewing people. And yeah. he got hooked. He yeah. got really hooked into the paranormal and UFOs and and kind of started going down this path. So Yeah. Well, like I said before, he started kind of getting interested in in those kind of topics because of another gentleman named Charles Fort. So he calls himself a Fortian, and that's kind of like a following or, a, you know— you're with a movement, whatever you want to say, into the ufology world. And at that time, they didn't have a name for it, you know, looking for the Loch Ness Monster. But right. So John Keel has this Charles Fort 
as kind of a role model in that sense mm-hmm. and somehow comes upon this story, the Mothman. And so being under the assumption, maybe it'd be a one-time event. He goes down to talk, you know, and try to figure out what's going on with this. He interviews Scarberry and Mallet. Yeah. He wants yeah. to talk to the kids that saw this Mothman thinking, right. Hey, it'll be the, you know, one, one time. So mm-hmm. let's go do a quick hit on it. And he arrived right December seventh, nineteen sixty six, and stayed there for a couple of days. Yeah, the first he's he went there a bunch of times. Yeah, this was the first time, December seventh. The first sightings occurred in mid November. Right. Um, Darren Berger's sighting was November second, so he's coming into the picture about a month after all the weird strangeness kind of starts. Yeah, happening. yeah, it's just really starting to kick up, and so. Uh, he made he made like you said me repeated visits uh, throughout the years from sixty uh, six through sixty seven as this progressed on. Um, then the uh, there were also uh, a lot of sightings going on um, along with the Mothman of UFOs, mm-hmm. and we'll get into that more as well. Uh, Keel wrote uh, a book that finally came out and was published in 1975 called The Mothman Prophecies. Uh, He died in 2009, and that was another reason I was saying it's kind of difficult to find a lot of videography of him speaking. Presentations and lectures. Yeah, I wish there was more because it's, it's, those are great, it's fun stories to watch. Um, He dedicated a book to Mary Heyer, uh, the Athens, Ohio reporter who worked for The Messenger and who passed in 1970. And then this is more in your arena too. You know, he talked about the ancient mound builders and the geometric earthworks yeah. they created in the area. Ten and pages into the book. Yeah, he doesn't <laughs> wait long. That's why I was like, oh my gosh, this is so up your alley. Yeah. It, it ties everything. He's kind of setting the stage for, again, the weirdness of the Ohio River Valleys. He's Right, it's just not spot, you know, it's mm-hmm. not just out of nowhere. There is there's a lot of backstory to it and as, you know, as he said too, they the the earthworks that they were building required, you know, technical skills beyond nomadic woods Indians. Yeah. Um, he thought that they were um extremely advanced. Yeah. He talked about them in high regard and whoever built them had to know really know their shit. Yeah. Um he spoke sites in Ohio Valley that were constructed with the same mathematical precisions found in the pyramids of Egypt. Right. So he was really impressed with what he saw in the Ohio River Valleys in terms of the ancient cultures there, yeah. the stories, the lore. Yeah. And so he really kind of dove in deep into the uh, ancient history of the area right. to get kind of a better perspective of uh, you know all the weird things that are kind of surrounding this town. And... Um, well, he, he was balanced, right? He wanted to look yeah. at it at the sense of, it reminds me of another fellow giving some advice of, you know, even if you like something or want to believe in it, you can't go in all the way believing, you know, you kind of have oh, to yeah. be impartial and balanced on it. Otherwise, you're just hunting everything down that you want to see or yeah. want to reinforce. And yeah. I'm not, I'm not uh, upset to say that something's not real. He but was skeptical. Yeah, you have to When he to entered the whole world of ufology, 
He yeah. was skeptical. You have yeah. to. Be. He looked at it in uh, in a more of a scientific. Yeah, and he didn't get along with a lot of UFO people. No, because he was really he tough was very on, matter of he fact. Was, he was tough things. on people too. He would call people out. Right, which only lends yeah. to his story, his credibility. Absolutely, I think so too. Absolutely, it's a hundred percent. But um, he one, said one thing he did note. What's that? Was a lot of these earthworks and mounds that he was seeing seeing could only be seen from the sky. That's kind of interesting. So he talks about that as Makes you think of Nazca Lions? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it's very similar. Yeah. Um, the earthworks here in Ohio and West Virginia, Indiana, and here in the Midwest are pretty geometric in nature. The right. ones in the Nazca Lions are more pictograph, uh, pictogram-oriented. Okay. okay. Although there is some geometry and um, different shapes that are... Um, are definitely more geometric in nature. Yeah. And um, so one thing he talked about was through his research, he found these old ordinances of pre-Columbian indigenous people. So somebody, he dug up this research where they were kind of looking at where all the tribes were before yeah, this part's Columbus showed up. And right. what they found across the river in Ohio Tons of civilization, these amazing earthworks and culture and art and um, sculptures. Right. And then the other side of the river in West Virginia, it seemed like they just completely avoided that land. Didn't touch it. There was um, a piece of, which on some of these maps, it says that they're... Um, <clears throat> that it's uh, uninhabited was the word that... Yeah. Uh, the people that made these maps called. And he was surprised. Yeah, he was surprised. Good land, good wildlife, good resources, yeah, everything wooded, you'd want to settle with. Farmable. Right. Um, and the only spot in that area they avoided was West Virginia. And so he also talked about, this is kind of a subject that I've gone pretty deep into. Um, there, During this time when he wrote this book, there's a resurgence of this diffusionist theory. So diffusionism is uh, was a concept that was sort of developed in the 1920s, and pretty much it was people trying to find the out-of-place artifacts, really weird temples, okay. constructions that didn't fit kind of the uh, mainstream narrative. Um, to do what? So different uh, constructions and artifacts that were out of place, they seemed way more advanced. And oh, so, okay. So okay. basically what the theory was was that they came from a, a single mother civilization that was really advanced. They started seeing similarities across cultures. So the idea is Without that, communication at the time. Right. So how are you getting the idea? Because the modern thought right now is, is, is like isolationism, that there are all these oceans and lakes and that they just didn't have the technology right. to cross mass oceans to be able to communicate and trade and share culture and share pyramid building and mound building. And, right. But yet at the same time, the mathematics, the geometry in uh, Egypt and um, down in the Yucatan and here in Ohio, a lot of these same uh, you know Pythagorean theorems and mathematical principles are encoded, the geometry encoded into these sites. Right. And so the diffusionists say that, well, this is a knowledge that comes from one sort of one 
mother civilization and then spread or diffused throughout the world. Gotcha. So basically these people were all in contact with each other in ancient times. There were trade routes. There were people sailing all over the oceans. There was... um, And so the other side of that, like I was saying, is uh, isolationism, which... um, you know, mainstream scholars kind of talk about uh, these technologies and inventions were actually occurred simultaneously, okay. separate from each other, not in contact, but, um, and they don't, I haven't heard a good explanation behind that. That or doesn't how, make a lot of sense to me, you know, but I mean. These inventions of tools and stone making and geometry were sort of just, here, this guy over here comes up with it, and then another guy in Egypt just sporadically comes up with it I could maybe buy, you know, do tools, whatever. You have different silverware in different countries, et cetera. But, mm-hmm. you know, why are you going to start making pyramids all over the planet? Yeah. And I mean yeah. really precise. With like, the same principles. And, right, right. Um, That's a little different, but... Uh, so, a lot okay. of these people, the diffusionist people back in the 1920s were proponents of Atlantis and were researchers of Atlantis, which on kind of the in, in uh, this, other scholars sort of scoffed at that. They were made fun of. So, sure. the diffusionist idea kind of went away because, you know, once you say Atlantis, you're just a kook, right? right? So, right. a lot of people, but... In the 1970s, they really saw a resurgence of this idea come back. So people are a bit more open-minded. It starts to be kind of taken more seriously. Right. And so John Keel kind of, he sort of gets into this diffusionist idea. And uh, as he's going down this rabbit hole of of studying earthworks and mounds here in the Ohio River Valley in West Virginia. So it was kind of cool to uh, see how um, deeply immersed he was into in researching, yeah, and his he, own views, mm-hmm. and well, he had a lot of strange things happen to him too. Yeah, so he kind of maybe that gave him a better perspective on on I don't know when you talked. I've never talked to somebody that's seen the Mothman firsthand, but I mean, try to imagine in that time going in and talking to people like it's not like oh I saw a grizzly bear. Yeah, this is this is. Little, How do you different. take that as a person that goes, <laughs> I mean, I would love to find out. That would be very interesting. But at the same time, how do you stay balanced in what you're reporting on and how you're analyzing what you're hearing? And I mean, I think the Charles Fort background and his kind of, you know, interest, it became an obsession. Yeah. Uh, helped him objectively report this better than maybe most could. Mm-hmm. Because, like you said, the same time that he was taking in the information, he's also very, very diligent about how he processes it. And he says yeah. in his book as well, you know, for every account that I give you, there's 50 more that I had to get rid of because I debunked them based off of this, 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 yeah. this. He, he had his really, own process. And he had a system. And that's, I mean, that's what brings that book to an even better level of, like I said, of, of viewership almost. It almost feels like you're there at certain points. Again, not that it's very linear at certain times, but it gives you a very good perspective of how the people were um, surrounding that time period and the different sightings that were going on. Yeah. Um, but he also, he he talks about, you know, the kind of the traditional 
aspects too of what most people talk about uh, when you get into ufology of you know there's cave paintings about ufos there's accounts throughout history and and ancient texts across multiple different you know disciplines and and belief structures and um and he john keel did believe that et's were visiting this planet oh yeah for a long time yeah and uh he he kind of uh he kind of went at um Oh, the the guy that wrote Chariots of the Gods, Von Daniken. Yeah, he kind of went Eric into Von, Von Daniken a little bit, and uh, and actually talked about a couple other guys that were well, much more researched and yeah. developed in their theories that were saying similar things to what Von Daniken was saying, but he was more of uh, kind of just on the surface level and not you know researching and and the proof just wasn't there in John Keel's opinion. Um, yeah, he had his own brand. Yeah. John Keel's, which is why it's kind of, it is interesting. It is refreshing. Maybe it does squash out a lot of different stories that maybe quite frankly, and that's where you kind of say, do I want to be the own judge of what information I'm getting in that sense? And you kind of have to yeah. know what you're willing to outsource to who you think has a better ability to determine whether it's credible or not. Right. And if I'm looking through the lens of John Keel, I'm not mad about that. Right. I don't think he's discounting things that aren't plausible. Um, but again, some people, and I'm not even mad about Von Daniken's oh, take no. on it. I, I, I mean, love Eric Von Daniken. He's, I mean, that guy single-handedly sparked, sparked the yeah. ancient alien wave in all yeah. across the world. So, yeah, has gotten people looking at things yeah. differently. I mean, that's great. Yeah. It's just to get your mind open to thoughts. It's not saying that I back anything on there 100%. Yeah, here's um, the information. Yeah. Take it in any way, any There's way a, you want. Yeah. Make your own mind up. Yeah, and that's what Keel's doing as well is, you know, still have the gumption to go down and report on this. I mean, it wasn't a light duty of reporting on it that he was no. down there for. And um, one thing that we were just talking about earlier— and uh, sort of, you know, what is the Mothman? How right. did it get there? And this is a quote from John Keel. From the time, from time to time, the playful inhabitants of the other world climb through the curtain in the areas we call windows. And they stalk us to drink our blood and create all kinds of mischievous beliefs and misconceptions in our feeble little terrestrial minds. So he talks about these sort of windows in time and areas where things can kind of come through. Right. Um, These window areas or zones of fear. How that, well. And maybe it opens up through these lands that are have been traumatized. and um, Maybe, these, but I almost think of it like a time of like, I don't, if it was, if it was that window of space, yeah. Why would it stop? If that's its w- working window area, I think it's more of like like um, your window of time. Let's put it this way. I, I did a hike in a canyon where it's very steep. You go down it. The, the bottom of that canyon every day gets like 30 minutes of sunlight because as the sun passes right. over, it can hit it. That's more the window I'm thinking of. Like this mothman can come in at this perfect angle. Right of time or space when it could interact. And from maybe other, from other dimensions. Right. Well he calls this is them like an interdimensional thing. What does he call them? Um 
He has some other name for it. I can't think of it at the moment. Super something. Um, super spectrum. That's what it okay. is. He calls it the super spectrum. Um, but he basically says that these things are always here. Right. So, you know, just like there's radio waves going around you right now and all these things happening that we can't, we can't see, but see they're happening. Yeah. And there's, there's instruments that can pick up those radio waves. Right. We can hear a song. Right. Right. Wi Fi signal. Right. Well, maybe there's all these different dimensions. There's television signals going around us right now. There's, there's a lot happening in space and time that is always around us that we don't interact with. Right. But so what if there are those things on that spectrum, on his super, super spectrum or whatever he calls it, that when they get that chance that we either line up perfectly or there's some ability for them to that interact That window with opens us. up and then yeah. something like can, Mothman can come through. You can see it. Maybe there's a physical touch to it. Like you can definitely, I guess, have an interaction with its eyes. Right. And get this, you know, wonderful burn and conjunctivitis from seeing the glow of the Mothman's eyes. Um, but yeah, he had this this thought that they were this, I thought he said ultra-terrestrials. Yeah. Um, that they're they're always here. They've been here for the eternity of humankind and before us and that, you know, we do see them, but they're not always in our plane of existence or they're not always able to interact with us. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of an interesting take on it. So it's not not that they're, coming from another planet or from maybe outer space or maybe even, say, with the Woodrow uh, Derenberger and Injured Cold. Is that an alien? Is that somebody on this plane of existence already? That yeah, can I mean, he said he had a planet. He was like a physical being from a planet. He said he, he had came kids. from Lanyos. He had, right. Okay. He had children. He had a wife called that Kimmy. Makes... K-I-M-I. No joke. <laughs> so that's a strange one. That's weird. <laughs> Um, That's funny. Keel also talks about, we hit it a little bit before, but he's talking to this uh, journalist, Mort Young, and Mort Young had records of UFO reports that were kept at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And according to Mort Young, he was uh, got his hands on some of these documents and uh, basically had come to the understanding that the depository for all the records from Project Blue Book were held at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Yeah. And uh, Mort Young was able to view a lot of these records. Now, some of them were heavily blacked out and redacted. Yeah. So there wasn't a whole lot of info that he could derive other than he knew for a fact that the records were kept at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base for Project Blue Book. Yeah. And... Um, Project Blue Book's a whole nother episode, which uh, really fascinating stuff there, yeah. which evolved into so many other UFO uh, programs with, you know, U.S. Naval Intelligence and uh, everybody kind of had their own compartmentalized UFO project throughout the years. Right. So it's kind of interesting. Keel ties a lot of the weird things we have here in Ohio, which, um, and, uh, so from, you know, the earthworks to, you know, uh, I know he was in Athens uh, talking to people about paranormal ghosts and Athens, Ohio being one of the most haunted places in the country. Yeah. So there's a lot going on here. A yeah. lot of weird stories, a lot of weird legends. Um, so that was kind of cool. Keel tying uh, many different things here. In, a lot of different stories here in Ohio. Right. And... Um, so UFO activity during this time was just 
off the chain. Yeah, as so much you had, as people were seeing the Mothman, you had Mothman they were seeing UFOs. And UFOs and UFOs and Mothman together in certain ways where they would see lights in the sky and then boom, Mothman would be there. Yeah. Um, so you had some things that were kind of doubling up. And uh, well, and Keel had a lot of his own interactions with the UFOs, like apparently like riverboats and like up and down the waterways, yeah. you know, transporting goods, what have you. At night, they would see lights in the sky mm. and they would shine their lights up at him and these things would dodge out of the that. way of the lights. Right. And so Keel actually had an encounter where he was doing the same thing. He was taking yeah. a, I think, a flashlight and shining at it and he said it would jump out of the way. Yeah. And then he would actually talk like Morse to them code. in Morse code. Yeah, yeah. But then he went even a crazier step further. He said um, he was making up his own language. So in his mind, he could have been doing whatever he meant for what is yes, two is no, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It, it could have made no sense to no one else, but somehow these things understood him again and right. we were able to like communicate messages to them on how to, whatever that means. Does that mean I'm going to get you to move around? Yeah. Does you jump in a certain pattern? That's where I don't really know what he means by that, but I mean, I assume um, it's something to that effect. Yeah. But yeah, there were a lot of UFO reports going on the same time as the Mothman, which then generates another step mm-hmm. in the Mothman web, which I called, <laughs> what did I call that? Cotton candy hot dog nacho sandwich, something like that. I mean, it's just <laughs> this giant pile of cotton candy nacho cheese dog. That's what it was. It's just everything. It's yeah, just it's like everything, everything you ever would want in a in a story. It's got it all. Because the topping on this becomes um, now with the Mothman and UFOs. There's some Men in Black sighting. Yeah, the Men in Black kind of come in. I thought that movie when that came out. Yeah, with Will Smith and Tommy mm-hmm. Lee. Jones, I thought that was all just. I never, I never knew any validity to the Men in Black stories in yeah. general either. So yeah. maybe that's what kind I heard of stories when I was a kid it. about the Men in Black, and I didn't really hear good ones, or I didn't. Yeah. It didn't stick in my mind as as much. It made more sense though, watching the Men in Black, the movie, seeing the Mothman prophecies, and then reading about it, you know, before and after. Right. Putting that whole picture together of how. Wait a minute. Maybe the you know Hollywood films of these aren't based. They're not terribly based. If you watch the Men in Black movie, yeah. it uses a With lot of the same elements. Some of these Barker reports and Keelan. Some of these reports from Point they, Pleasant yeah. specifically. It seems almost uh, interwoven into that that film. Yep. And uh, the there was so Keel kind of lays the foundation when he goes into the Men in Black. He he talks about other cities and. Other like bartenders and waitresses in New York, and yeah. um, there's somebody in like Texas or Wisconsin, and you know they would come into a restaurant, and again, a lot of these guys looked what you know this woman said as Oriental, yeah, or extremely tan. Um, I don't remember if they had they're a nationality. awkward, yeah. unintelligible, um, but this one specific story, this guy comes in, he's dressed in a black suit, very out of place, just looks strange and um, would, couldn't communicate very well, was kind of just gruff and grumpy and um, he orders a steak and jello 
off yeah. the menu and couldn't figure out how to use the utensils with the steak. Right, the waitress and, was showing him how to cut the it The waitress had to show him how to, to eat jello. He was trying to suck it up with a straw. Yeah. And so she got a spoon out and was like, this is how you eat jello. <laughs> and so it's just um, a lot of those kind of reports of they're just out of place, awkward. They just don't come off as uh, in any way... It just they just don't connect with people, which makes it all the stranger. Mm-hmm. And even the re- even stranger. And the the reports are like a old Cadillac, old model Cadillac, right? These the kind of big older cars, brand new though, and, but brand like new, twenty years old, shiny as can be. Like they just new. rolled off the lot. Right. And that's Men in Black with Will Smith and right. Tommy Lee Jones. They ride right. around on an old Lincoln, right? And uh, it's you know all tricked out, but it looks it looks old, right? Older model, no big deal, right? Um, so they um, they start showing up. They start showing up. One of the interesting, and we can this is kind of a nice segue into Mary Hire. So they're kind of asking townspeople um, about John Keel. They're the Men in Black kind of show up and. And um, yeah. they're asking questions around town. To a um, lot of witnesses of, of UFO either Mothman or, or UFOs. Right. They would just show up, you know, they could be entwined with the Mothman sighting just by asking the witness, well, were you talking to John Keel? Right. There, yeah. there seemed to be a weird strangeness about John Keel himself. Yeah, they were really interested that was in That tied in with all of this... That's where that layering and he would bring up Gray Barker. Yeah, he he, got they would up say as well. they'd be you know uh, coming up to one of the townspeople. They'd knock on their door. They'd ask him, "I'm friends with Gray Barker. I'm friends yeah. with John Keel. Yeah. I'm friends with Mary Heyer." Yeah. So they would drop these names in right. hopes to get uh, get a know, little bit of friendliness going. Yeah, exactly. Breaking the ice a little bit. Right. See and what's going on. So one uh, Mary Heyer. Uh, Athens, Ohio journalist. Um, she was kind of just a reporter that was doing stories about UFO sightings, Mothman. Um, she well, had that this... all started because of the Mothman. Okay. Before that, okay. she was known as the Stringer. Okay. And that was, you know, births, deaths, marriages, oh, okay. etc. She was like a columnist. Basically. Yeah. Right? And so she's doing that for the newspaper. And knowing knowing all that, She's the perfect conduit knowing all of the people. Right. So she knew when, everybody. Everybody came to her. So when people started having, you know, uh, sightings or they had interactions. They would go to her. Right. She was the first person they could go to. It's, they felt comfortable with her. And again, she just knew everyone. Yeah. And this is a small community. So Keel found out pretty quickly uh, because he wasn't really sure how he felt about her when he first met her. I think he puts in his book that, you know, he, he thought she was a busybody and a so-and-so. And he quickly found out that she was a very highly regarded lady in that neighborhood and community. Yeah. He dedicated his book to Mary Heyer. Right. So. She, in a lot of ways, piped Keel in. She died in 1970. She died very not, shortly she died after. not long after the bridge yeah. went down itself. Mm-hmm. Do you imagine that? Living through all this and then you get done with it and it's just like. Yep. I guess that was the, the finality was which, yep. watching the uh, Mothman series. That's interesting. But yeah, she. She um she had her own experience with uh, the Men in Black a number of times, and there was one that I 
think we were watching the other night or hearing a recount of it that was interesting was the the little man showing up in her office. Yeah. At the I don't know if she was at the state courthouse at the, the time working there was or where two she was. men that showed up originally and uh uh I'm sorry. This guy with a dark complexion, oriental looking. Yeah, the little and, square haircut. Mhm. Big thick glasses on. Right. And he's just an awkward guy, kind of stumbled around, um, and he he says to her, heard you have a lot of UFO sightings here. And, yeah. and mind you, this is after the Silver Bridge collapses. Right. So this right. is kind of, things are winding down, and this character comes in, and you know everybody's asking questions about the Silver Bridge. Nobody cares about UFOs or Mothman at this point. Right. It, it, the whole town was concerned about their loved. I mean, there's only like over just over two thousand people in Point Pleasant. Right, forty six people died. Everybody knew somebody that p- passed away in Absolutely. that in that tragedy. Yeah. So the fact that this guy comes in, so here you got a lot of UFO stories, and she says, "Yeah, we have some stories here, and um, we have quite a few sightings here." And she was kind of just taken back, and so. This Men in Black character says, what if someone told you, what would you do if someone told you to stop writing about UFOs? Right. Mary Heyer says, I tell them go to hell. So, you know, she's kind of this badass lady that just <laughs> kind of tells this guy, you know, kind of, hey, screw off. I'm going to report what I want to report about. Right. And she, he starts asking her uh, questions about John he, John Keel. And says, oh, you know, John Keel's a liar. He didn't see any UFOs. And she says, that's absolutely right. not true. I was with him and I had my own experience and can and I can confirm that John Keel has seen things in right. this area. And he um, is asking um, if she knew, uh, great, maybe this is different. I'm getting them mixed up. Um, but he just kind of drops these names and so later yeah, that he afternoon, said he knew both of them. Yeah, exactly. So uh, later that afternoon, a different guy. This guy's got like real dark black eyes. He's even has darker tan skin. Um, he looks Korean or Oriental, according to Mary. But he's got these really weird kind of long tapering fingers that are kind of gangly. Okay. And um, and it just again out of place. Introduces himself as Jack Brown. Says he's a UFO researcher, but he's got got got, got like this st- st- stammer. Yeah. And so it's hard for this guy to get his words out. And um, and he says again. What would you do if someone told you to stop reporting about UFOs? This says guy this to Mary says Heyer. the same thing again to okay. Mary Heyer. And and she says, are you with those guys from earlier? So I guess it was two guys. I'm in my notes yeah. here. It was two guys. And then this guy came by himself, this Jack Brown. And um, and, she's, and she says, um, are you with the guys from earlier? And the MIB guy stammers. He says, this time he says, I'm a friend of Gray Barker. And he's that well, well-known well UFO researcher we were talking about earlier. And then Mary says, do you know John Keel? And the guy says, I, I used to think uh, the world of John K- K- Keel. And now I think he's a liar. And oh, he said he was a liar because he said he'd seen UFOs. Right. He's a liar because he said he's seen UFOs. That's kind of strange. And so this is when Mary says, I know he's seen things. And um, 
because I was with him when he saw them. That's crazy. So the silver bridge is collapsed. Um, and, um, you know, Mary hires sort of on the front lines of the bridge. The national media is contacting her. Um, the local people are contacting her. So she's kind of the go-to lady around during this whole time. Right. Super fascinating woman. Um, and uh, seemed to have the respect of everyone in the area. Um, and so, you know, there's all these different players, these different events, these, you got the UFOs, the Mothman, the right. injured cold. Right. Um, and, you know, the the curse of Chief Cornstalk. How and, much can you put into one, you know? Yeah, it's just got everything. That's why the Mothman in general, when we, when we talk about it and we talk about Mothman, I, I guess I'm framing it in the sense of the movie, the Mothman prophecies or the book. Just off of the name, but when you actually talk about it, like you're saying, there are so many different levels yeah. to this. I mean, you could come at it from saying, oh, do, hey, and do you know that way, ghost story? Oh, hey, do you know that cryptid story? There are still oh, hey, sightings do- of Mothman now. I know. All over the world. Fukushima yeah. in Japan. Yeah. Uh, a bridge that collapsed in Mississippi. There were yeah. reports of a Mothman-type creature um, being you know, seen over the Fukushima a power plant before right. the tsunami happened. Right. You have, uh, and I mean, I just saw there's a, a photo that some guy uh, in Point Pleasant in 2016 took a photo of, you know, a Mothman type dude. Who knows if that was real? But it's just, it's still in the collective consciousness. These beings are still being reported. Right. Um, it really hasn't stopped in Point Pleasant. It, it, it stopped for a while, but there are reports now of Mothman sightings in that area even now. I mean, do you remember that time we got lost coming back from Illinois and we ended up in Daniel Boone National Forest? Yeah, I fell asleep if for there was 20 minutes be- and then we ended up in Daniel Boone National Forest in Kentucky. <laughs> we weren't supposed to be going to Kentucky. Missed to one road. Cincinnati. I missed one road. <laughs> it must have been a big road. But what I'm going to say is, now imagine that of all places, was one of the places oh, I thought, where I thought we were going to oh, see something. Oh, I thought we were going to get abducted. Who knows? Something's there could have been something out there. I swear if there was Bigfoot, a random graveyard up in those Bigfoot hollows. If Bigfoot would have just came out from behind a tree and waved at us, wouldn't, wouldn't have been surprised. Not at all. Wouldn't I have mean, batted an eye. That was a deep, deep back road. We, I don't know how we got out of that. I don't think it was a real road. It, it was just... I a, don't know what it was, but it doesn't seem like it was Kentucky real Kentucky dirt road. It was really bizarre. And then we came up through Marietta. Yeah, I was like, "Oh God, thank God, civilization." I might have been where near Woody was, but uh, imagine in that night, and as we're going around, you see a six to eight foot tall, no, guy looking bird thing, Mothman with red ten eyes, to, <laughs> red eyes, yeah, ten to fifteen foot wingspan. I can't. I mean. It's just too much there. <laughs> yeah. Now, this is the crazy part. That's not the only thing about the Mothman. No. It's like the Mothman's a traveling carnival of weird shit. Yeah. You know, Mothman, UFOs, um, men in black. But there was also a lot of strange stuff that happened with the Mothman as well with, you know, um, 
telephone lines, having weird static electricity. Lines, yeah. yeah, there's there's a lot of weird things with power in Sound. general. Around it. Yeah, really weird noises. Well, and there were things with Keel where um, people were impersonating him. Yeah, on you're the phone about that. He would he would talk to Mary, and he would say something. She'd be like, "Oh, well, you were just saying five minutes ago on the phone this," and he's like, "I didn't call you." Weird. Like a lot of weird stuff. Yeah. I don't know how much further in that book you have, but like I said, there's so much to it. That's where there's not enough time to even like mm-hmm. really go that deep with it. Yeah. But he had a lot of strangeness surrounding even that. So it's kind of, you know, his window theory. Was he looking at that area at the right time? Was that just mm-hmm. his kind of curiosity as well? Because he wasn't really. He was being pulled into reporting on things like this super in depth before, and you just kind of like, as he said, I think no, you I hit think a home run. He, he's he was doing research for a magazine, I believe, right. and then I don't know if it was the same story that brought him to Point Pleasant or not. I thought that it, it might. I'd have, have to look up and and get the facts because he had seemed I, pretty not a total expert, but he had come across some weird things up to that point. I don't right. think this was like, this is probably the most in depth, strangest thing he's come across at that point. Well, um, and, and again, firsthand it, experience. It just wise. keeps going. Yeah. You know, it's oh, not it just, just never like, ends. It's not I, just like dude, say one I, UFO incident. I really thought that a couple crazy people saw this thing. <laughs> the bridge collapsed, you know, game over. That was it. That was the sighting. No, you know, I didn't get much from the the movie, um, as far as like like the injured cold and and the men in black. Like, well, I just don't. Rem- I don't remember. Is it? I need to rewatch it's, it. I need to injured cold it. is definitely in the movie. Okay, because he interacts with and again, I can't think of the actor's name. Um, it's Richard Gere is the lead. He's the lead, but the the guy that plays one of the locals that Richard Gere interacts with, the guy right. that holds him up at gunpoint in the shower scene. Um, that's the guy that has these interactions with Injured Cold. And in, in that role in the film, Injured Cold is kind of like a, a prophet to that guy. He right, tells right. him all these different things that are going to happen, but he doesn't necessarily tell him like, you know, uh, there's going to be a car crash on such and such street. He tells him in kind of like coded messages when he talks to him that, you know, like, uh, this is going to happen in uh, like Denver 999 or whatever it was. It was yeah, some yeah. airplane that goes down. And in that sentence of what it tells him, it tells him how many passengers on the plane hmm. uh, perish in the wreck. And so that's how they kind of wove it into that. But, um, oh, you know what? That reminds me. Hmm. Mary Heyer had a dream yeah. the night before or the week of the Silver remember. Bridge collapsing. Where she was dreaming about the townspeople drowning, and she just had this horrible feeling that something bad was going to happen after this dream kind of came up. Turns out, a bunch of other people in the town had similar dreams and nightmares. A lot of about people. It looks like a yeah. tragedy that was uh, potentially going to pop up uh, in the town. So yeah. Um, you know, it's just it just never ends. I mean. Maybe that's another level that high strangeness. Yeah, there's like a community effect at this level to where there's so many collective people. consciousness is being affected on a on a large scale. So it's like everybody's interconnected into this weirdness. Well, if you want to take it a step further, if you have all those chemicals in the ground and soaking into the earth, right? 
if there's maybe a, they're just losing their shit. Well, maybe what if just, it's what if it's the Earth itself? If that's like a protective thing of like, hey, you've messed up my uh, natural integrity so much with these chemicals that I'm gonna unleash the Mothman on you. You summon the Mothman by putting so much duck butter in the water. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Well, man, I I honestly, we could continue this conversation for probably another three, four hours. Right. But, uh, I mean, I think we got into some, uh, the meat and potatoes of this story. Right. Super fun. I had a great time researching this with with you and Stone. And uh, this has been a blast. This is... uh, Strange Road Detours, episode one, and uh, that's a wrap. All right. Thanks, buddy. Absolutely. Same. All right, bro.